wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. Why don't you grab your notes out of your handout? You'll see that we're wrapping up a series today called Crazy Love. Today, if you look at the title, you'll see it's Living Single in a Crazy World. And we did want you to know that at Overlake, just under 40% of Overlakers, those who call Overlake their church home, are single adults. So it's quite a big population here. We love you. We care for you. We value you. Uh, I also want you to know that in the culture, right, the demographics surrounding Overlake, that percentage goes up just under 50% of the culture that surrounds us is single. So we just want you to know that we love you, that God has a great plan for you. Um, We value you. If you're here and you are single, I know what you're thinking. Uh, I hope today's homework is a little more applicable to my life than last week's homework. And uh, we actually did want to start with um, a poll. So if you guys would all grab your cell phones out, we want to ask you to pull in. uh, Following up on the homework assignment from last week, you'll see, how did you do on the seven-day challenge? Number one, we did it. Yay! And I'm tired. Number two, we gave it a shot, right? Gave a shot three to six times. Uh, Three, uh, we enjoyed intimacy once or twice. Thank you very much. And the last one, I'm single and I'm bitter, okay? So go ahead. The last service, the first person to text in was single and bitter. And so it said 100%. Yeah, that just means that's the first one coming in. Don't freak out. Not everyone's bitter. Uh, but uh, go ahead and text in your answers. And, and here's the deal. We just recognized, we talked about this last week, that there is, um, there is a glue to marriage. And that glue that God had him on is physical intimacy. And so we just recognize the reality that as we come together, husband and wife, spouses come together in physical intimacy, there's actually a hormone that's released called the bonding hormone. And that brings then all areas of the relationship, even that much more connected. And so my prayer is that as husbands and wives have come together this week, they've noticed that they've been more loving, more thoughtful, more graceful, more communicative, that intimacy in the bedroom has spilled out into all other areas of their relationship. Now, just on the flip side of that, if you, you know, are married and you experience that there was pain and there was disconnect or there was, there, there was, it, it brought up some, some issues in your marriage, don't ignore those. Allow those to be another way that God is speaking to you and saying, hey, here are some broken areas. These are some areas that you need to invite my healing into. Okay, so I I do want to let you know that as we wrap up this series, I really do need to say this. Last week, we were very, very intentional, intentional about saying that the topic was rated M for mature. And it was. And if you're here last week, you know, oh, that was rated M. And they talked about things I never thought I would hear in church. Um, today, it, it is also rated M. It's not going to be the same. And the topic's going to be in general. Um, it's just going to be adult content. And so I just want to give a heads up. If you've decided to bring your elementary school kids into the auditorium, you probably already sense that this topic might not be applicable to their lives right now. So um, uh, please feel free to take them into our children's ministry. If you'd like to. Okay, living single in a crazy world. This might also be titled Living Pure in a Crazy World. 
Because the recognition is our culture. In this area, there's just so much craziness, right? And the culture says, hey, anything goes. With anyone, it's fine that, that whatever you can come up with, that's okay. In this area of sexuality, just go for it. It has nothing to do with how it will impact your mind, how it will impact your heart, how it will involve and, and in, in, uh, impact all of the intimate relationships the whole rest of your life. Don't worry about that. It's just two bodies coming together, enjoying some pleasure, have at it, right? And what the culture even says, they go even further and they say, hey, you know what is crazy? Going God's best. What is crazy is waiting until you're married to have sex. That's crazy. That's foolish. Don't do that. And so it really is important for us to kind of get behind this and say, well, what is it that God has to say about our sexuality? The late Wilt Chamberlain had some great numbers in the NBA, but the number he'll probably be remembered for most is the number 20,000. Because in his autobiography, that's how many women he estimated that he'd slept with, 20,000. And uh, the only times I've ever heard that quote are from people in our culture who think that that's a number, a record that they want to break, okay? But what most people don't realize, I read this week, few people remember, says columnist Clarence Page, that Chamberlain went on to write that he would have traded all 20,000 for the one woman he wanted to stay with for keeps. See, it's not just God's idea, it's actually what we yearn for the most. God's plan is really a good plan. And, and, and there are all kinds of lies out there about sex and about relationships. And all of the lies have a source. Jesus is the one who identifies this source. He's talking to some Pharisees back in the day. And Jesus says in John eight forty four, For your children of your father... The devil. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, check this out. It is consistent with his character for he's a liar and the father of lies. See, when the devil lies, he's just speaking his native language. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's how he operates. And so he loves to lie about sex specifically Because he knows that's the easiest way to bring shame into your life. That's the easiest way he can bring the burden and the cloud of shame to you. But we don't want to look at the lies necessarily. We just want to look in the truth and live in the truth. And that's what Jesus says. John 8, 31. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You're truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And you might want to underline that last phrase. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So today we want to expose some of the lies regarding sex. And specifically, we want to renew our minds with the truth that comes from God. Because there really is a reason why we call it God's best. And the reason is because it's God's best for you. It's God's best for your relationships, for your marriage, It's God's best for your friendships, for your kids. If you don't have kids, maybe someday you will have kids. And it's God's best in that it brings him the most glory. So no matter how you slice it, this pathway of God's best really is best. Now, if you're here and you are single, right? You need to understand that at no point are we trying to equate singleness with incompleteness. 
That is not at all our stance. That's certainly not the biblical stance. In fact, the apostle Paul writes, we start with these verses in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Now, he doesn't say this because he wants to date really, really well within the church, right? This is, he says, no, no, it's a good thing. He, he goes on. But God gives to some the gift of marriage. We talked about that last week. It's part of his favor and his grace over us. And then to others, the gift of singleness, which means if you receive the gift of singleness, it's also his grace and his favor over you. The next verse. Paul says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man or an unmarried woman can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. What he's saying here is if you're single, if you have the gift of singleness, then you are absolutely free to jump off the deep end for Jesus. You can go anywhere. You can do anything. If God stirs your heart for some cause, for some country, for some people group, you're there. You're doing it. There's nothing holding you back because you've received this gift of singleness and you're not tied down by, you know, a spousal relationship, relationship with kids. You are absolutely free to pursue the glory of God to your heart's content without any other concerns in this world. Now, if you're married, you can do great things for the kingdom. If you have kids, you can do great things for this kingdom. But you must be concerned for them. They become your first ministry, right? And what Paul's saying is, if you've received a gift of singleness, you don't have that extra concern. You are absolutely free to do whatever, go whatever, be whatever for the glory of God. Make that your first and your ultimate concern. It's a great, great thing. Now, if you're here and you're single and you're, you're thinking to yourself... I don't know that my singleness is a gift, right? It's hard for me because I think about being married. I want to be married. I think about relationships. I'd like to walk that road. I'd love to be a mom or a dad or whatever. If you're wondering if you have the gift of singleness, the chances are really, really good you don't have that gift, okay? Because like a gift, God gives you a gift. You're going to want that gift. You're going to be, oh yeah, I'm single and I love it and go anywhere. Oh, that that resonates with me. If you're always thinking about wanting a relationship, you don't have that gift. You know, God's wired you for something different. And so for you, what I'd say to you, the encouragement that I have for you has to do with who you are and who you're becoming. I'll start with a question. Uh, A pastor named Andy Stanley asked this question. We got it on the screen. The question is, are you... Who the person you're looking for is looking for. And it's a great question. It, it, it just means that you've got to be the one before you can find the one. You've got to be the guy in order to find the girl. You've got to be the right girl before you can find the right guy. That, that it starts with this cultivation of who we are. And, and I want to talk about how we do that. And I can sum it up in three words. If you're filling in the blanks, the three words that we want to go after today are purity, character, and Christ. Purity, pursuing purity in your life. Character, cultivating the character and constructing the character that God has for you. And then living your life with the identity in who you are in Jesus. And we go all the way back to the beginning. We talk about God's plan for relationships in the book of Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 24, 25. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And that is what we covered last week. And then it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and unashamed. There was an intimacy and a trust and a security. They, they knew one another. They were intimate with one another. They were before the Lord God Almighty. And there was absolutely no sense of shame whatsoever. Now that's hard for us to get our minds around, right? It's difficult for us to, to recognize that those two things can be in the same context together. Naked typically has so much shame associated with it. Being unashamed doesn't really tend to have anything to do with being naked. So, so to put them together just is hard for us. I was thinking about a time way, way back, years and years ago. We had a bunch of people over at our house. My parents were there and some friends and, and some other relatives. And it was getting late. And so I was trying to put my kids down. My son Caleb was only two at the time. And so I'd given him a bath and I was trying to get his pajamas on. But he ran out of the bathroom. And he ran down the hallway, naked as a jaybird, right into the living room. And he started dancing around in front of the whole crowd. He's like, I'm naked, I'm naked, I'm naked, you know. And, and it was so funny to watch the reaction because nobody just averted their eyes, you know. Nobody, you know, threw up. No, nobody gasped like, it's so disgusting, right? Like they just laughed and cheered him on and he did a little wiggle dance and then he ran back upstairs and we got his jammies on. And so you, you, you need, un- so, okay, naked and unashamed right now. That's okay if you're two, right? Like we're like, oh, you're great. If I did that now, you know, don't let's, no, nobody think about that. Don't picture, no, uh, right? This doesn't work, right? And so you're like, oh, okay. how does that naked and unashamed thing go? And so here's what we want to unpack, pursuing purity, right? That is so important. Constructing your character, so important. Getting your identity and who you are in Christ. These things are the essential components of being able to be naked and unashamed. If you're single, by the way, that's the goal. That you would live your life in such a way so that if God ever does bring a spouse into your life, you are pure and you have incredible character and your identity is secure in Christ. And you're to live in such a way that you can stand before your spouse and before your Lord naked and unashamed. My daughter Alexandra is 11 years old and she loves to sing. And, and it just it spills out of her heart all the time. And she sings on our kids' worship team and she was recorded and is on our, our kids' worship album. And she, just, she loves to worship the Lord. And, but it's, it's even more than just in those organized settings. I mean, she's just constantly singing. She's getting ready for school in the morning and she's just singing a song, jumps in the shower at night, just singing a song. She gets home from school. She goes into her room, shuts the door, works on her homework. And you can just hear this little bird song wafting through the hallway and she's la-da-da-da, you know, and you can barely hear the lyrics and they don't make sense all the time. And she loves to write songs. Most of them are to God. And I just look at her as a father and I look at how this song just spills out of her heart. And it just delights me so much. I, I just, I, I get so much joy out of, out of this expression. And, and, you know, her mom and I, we didn't teach her this. We didn't train her in this. We, if you heard us sing, you'd know we couldn't. Like, that's not a, 
a gift we have. And, and so this is just natural. It just flows out of her, bubbling forth. And she's 11. And I want to guide her and protect her in such a way so that when she's 16, that song still bubbles. When she's 18, there's still that song that flows. And when she's 21, when she's 25, and when she stands on her wedding night before her spouse, before the Lord Almighty, that there is a song unbroken and undiminished and unashamed that she's able to sing. And that's what I want for my daughter. And Overlake, that's what I want for you. And that's what I want for me. But I gotta tell you, who cares what I want? That's what God wants. That's what God wants for my daughter. And that's what God wants for you. And that's what he wants for me. And so that's how we're to conduct ourselves, pursuing purity and constructing our character and getting our identity in Christ. And if you're married here today, the goal is exactly the same. It's exactly the same that God's already given you a spouse and he's given you his favor and you are to conduct yourself in such a way that you protect and, and you pursue purity in your relationship and you build your character upon the word of God and you let your identity be in Christ. And here's the problem. The problem is our sexuality is Satan's easiest door to bringing shame in our lives. It's his easiest door. So it's the one he hits on almost every single life. See, Satan did it to Adam and Eve by asking them the question, did God really say don't? Right? Did God really say that's off limits? Doesn't that fruit look really good? Why would a good God tell you that you couldn't have something that is obviously so good. And that's how temptation comes today. I was talking to a dude not too long ago, and he was telling me when he was a teenager, he had all these raging hormones going on in his body. And one of his friends told him, hey, God's down on sex. So if you say yes to God, you got to say no to sex. And, and, and sex is wrong and sex is dirty. And this young teenager was like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me because why would God build me with all these hormones and then just tell me it's wrong, right? And, and so he decided, I don't want any part of a God who would build me in such a way and then not let me have full expression. And it just reminds me of what the church is sometimes accused of teaching, that it's always wrong, that it's always bad. I found this quote this week. It says, sex is dirty. Sex is gross. Save it for the person you marry, Right? <laughs> Obviously, that's the confusion that happens in our culture. That's not from the Bible. In fact, just the opposite is true. That God says, no, no, not dirty or gross. No, it's the most precious, tender, awesome, lovely, pleasurable gift that I could possibly give you. And it's for intimacy between one man and one woman. It is so precious that I want to provide incredible boundaries around it. So that a husband and wife could enjoy this as an untainted gift for the whole course of their lifetime. And that it would build intimacy in all areas of their relationship with one another. No. No, no. God's care and his protection over sex is for your sake. It's for your sake. He's not being a bad God withholding from you. 
He's being a loving God, caring for your heart. Think about this for a moment, if I could ask you. Think about the first time in your life, if you can, go back through the years. When was the first time in your life that you experienced sexual immorality? When was the first time? Chances are good you remember it. Somebody showed you something. Somebody did something to you. You had an opportunity that seemed strange and exciting and you took it. When was the first time? What were you thinking about? Was your heart racing? Your palms sweating? Had you viewed the world one way and then suddenly because of this experience, everything changes. Everything is suddenly tainted a different shade. Suddenly you understand something you hadn't known before. It's called shame. When I was five years old, friends, the neighborhood boys introduced me to Playboy magazine. Five. First time in my life, I had no idea. It was just this entire world at five years old. So of course it changes the way you think. Of course it changes the way you perceive the world. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to destroy that innocence. He wants to bring shame and the burden and the stain. And I'd love to have you write this down. It's not on your notes, but just write this somewhere. Sexual injuries cause lasting bruises of shame. The sexual injuries that we endure cause lasting bruises of shame. And what God wants to do is he wants to take that which lies in the dark and bring it out into the light where he can bring his healing and his wholeness. And so God wants to remove the lies that our culture tells and to renew our minds with his truth. Again, if you're filling in the blanks, the the first of two questions is what seed of sexual shame has Satan planted in your life? What is it? You need to identify that. Where is that seed of shame that's been planted Maybe somebody touched you, somebody did something to you, showed you something. Maybe, maybe you walked that way willingly with excitement, but, but you were changed. Maybe for you, you grew up attracted to things that, that were, you felt like were, uh, oh gosh, how in the world did I get attracted to that? It doesn't look like anyone else in the world is attracted to that, but yet I'm attracted to that. And maybe, maybe that same sex attraction and there was this confusion and there was this shame building up over that. And the question is, what seed has been planted in your life? See, the serpent said to Adam and Eve, if you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. In other words... Everything is yours. Nothing will be withheld from you. You can pursue any fantasy you have. You can do anything you want. Every good thing is you're entitled to it. Look, it doesn't that fruit look good? Why would a good God say, no, you can't have that fruit? It's, it looks so good. I'm sure it tastes so good. And isn't that the deal with temptation, right? Of course, sexual sin, it looks good. It looks appealing. If it didn't look good, nobody would fall for it, right? So yeah, it looks good. And there's a natural attraction there that Satan uses. And so, of course, Adam and Eve fell. And they do what is forbidden. They eat the forbidden fruit. And look instantly what happens. This is in Genesis 3, 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, that's a picture of them being naked and very ashamed. 
Right? They became afraid of God and suddenly they began to hide from him. Their nakedness shamed them. It reminded them of their sin against God. And so they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, I do want to point out something to you that fig leaves have very tiny thorns all around them. True story. Yeah, so what they were doing is they were covering themselves and wounding themselves in the very areas of their shame. And they were doing this willingly as a way to hide themselves from God. And that still continues today. It's exactly what continues today. And so they, they put these fig leaves over themselves and they, they, they made loincloths for themselves. And yet they were continually wounded in the area of their shame. Single person, I want to tell you very clearly that a sexual conquest now becomes a ghost of shame later. If you're married, you need to understand this as well, that, that whatever conquest, right, whatever pursuit you have outside of the one avenue that God's provided, it will provide a ghost of shame. And there will be a haunting in your marriage unless you deal with it. Now, this also includes pornography. And I mentioned that I'd refer to this today. Pornography. The myth of pornography is that it's a temptation that only men have. And it does tempt men. It tempts many good men. But the reality is, and the new statistics and the new research shows, that is also impacting women at an unprecedented rate. That 30, between 30 and 40% of online viewership now is female viewership. A book that just came out called Dirty Girls Come Clean, it was about a gal who was addicted to pornography all her teen years, even as she was in youth group activities and all this stuff. And finally, she just really said, hey, enough's enough. She pursued Christ. She's living in wholeness and freedom, and she's helping others come clean. The reality is it impacts so many. And I know it impacts some of you here. Statistically speaking, it's inevitable. It's got a hold on you. You can't find your way out of it. And Jesus addresses this. He, he's talking about the Ten Commandments in one passage, and he's talking about adultery. And of course, in the Ten Commandments, it says, don't commit adultery. And, and that seems like a no-brainer, right? That makes sense. Don't commit adultery because adultery, it wounds the intimacy between husband and wife, so often causes divorce or separation. If there's kids involved, there's pain. There's just kind of pain all over this process of adultery. So don't do adultery, right? God's not down on sex. He's up on life. He's up on intimacy. Adultery wounds all that. So that seems to make sense. But Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, these, you know, kind of religious, religiosity kind of folks. And they're saying, well, I haven't committed adultery. And Jesus says, no, no, God's concerned more about the outward activities. He's concerned about what's going on in your heart. And lust is a part of so much of this stuff. And look what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 27, he says, you've heard that the law of Moses says, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eye has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even if it's your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even if it's your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. All right, that's a very, very interesting passage, right? 
And some of you, it feels like a terrifying passage right now. And you're like, oh my gosh, I hope the action step doesn't involve a machete today. Like that does not seem. Now, what, what's Jesus talking about? Is he saying going literal, right? Literally, if, if you lust, if your eye causes you to lust, does he really want you to pluck it out with a spoon? Like if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If, if that were the case, friends, on, every guy in here would be a blind stub. <laughs> I'd be the only guy who could clap. And uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's not true. No, what Jesus is clearly saying is you go radical with this. You take whatever drastic measures you need to take in order to cut this lust out of your life. You cut it out like a surgeon removes cancer because that's what it is. Don't just kind of, you know, muck around in the haze. No, you take whatever steps are necessary in order for you to not continue to live under this banner, this shameful banner of lust. Now, I want to say this when it comes to pornography, you have to remember that the God-given goal of sex within marriage is intimacy, right? Pleasure's a part of it, but pleasure's not the goal. Intimacy's the goal. And so you have to understand when it comes to pornography, what you're doing is you're loading this computer up with image after image after image. You're bringing all kinds of people into your bedroom. Single person, maybe it's your future bedroom, right? Married person, it's, it's into your marriage bed. And, and you're, you're damaging the intimacy that God wants to bring. Whether you bring another person in physically or if it's just here, if it's in your heart, you're you're going against what God's best is for sexuality. And you're just loading this computer up with all kinds of of body parts and this library of images. And and you're setting your your future spouse up for for a standard they'll never be able to meet. And you're also kind of degrading yourself in the process. Heaping shame on yourself, creating a, a, a false image of you that you'll never be able to meet. Now, I want to say that there's another kind of pornography as well. It's called emotional porn. As some of you are more wired towards the visual and the graphic, and others of you are more wired toward the emotion and the affections. But both can be just as damaging when it comes to intimacy. And what emotional porn looks like is you got a, a friend at the office, right, uh, of the opposite sex, and and they're so kind and they're so thoughtful and they value you just right. And they, they get your humor in a way that your spouse just doesn't. And, and you just, you know, you just find your heart being, being drawn to that person in the office. And you're making all these subtle kind of comparisons to your spouse. You don't even notice you're doing it. But, but somewhere in the back of the subconscious is, well, why doesn't my spouse get me like this person? Why don't they appreciate me like this person? How come my spouse can't be more like this person? It's a dangerous form of emotional pornography. And it happens uh, in terms of our reading, right, in the culture. And we've talked about this before. You know, the, 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 the true damage that, uh, like, the Twilight series can inflict on a, par- on a marriage, right, is that the idea of women just read, this, oh, look at this 100-year-old vampire. He's so kind and he's so nice. And <laughs> go to your husband, why can't you be more like Edward, you know? Two reasons. Number one, he's fiction. Number two, I'm team Jacob. So I can't, you know, I don't. 
But you understand what I'm talking about. So you have to recognize where's the danger in your world. How do you how do you guard against it? Uh, John Piper says this. We must not give a sexual image or impulse more than five seconds before we mount a violent counterattack with the mind. So how do we do that? If you're wrestling with this, if this is a struggle that comes up again and again, how do you do this? Somebody much smarter than me has come up with the analogy of starve the sumo. You might want to write that down. I'll unpack it a little bit. Let's imagine that you've got to wrestle. um, You've got to get in the ring with a sumo wrestler. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to get in the ring with a sumo wrestler, I would imagine that's an incredibly daunting task, right? To try to wrestle to the ground, to try to beat this guy. I mean, number one, I'm like 160 pounds dripping wet. Okay, uh, they are like two, three, four times that big. I don't know exactly. I, I don't follow the sport. Uh, y- you know, I know uh, how I'm wired. I know how I'm built, how I'm muscled. I look, I see kind of, you know, what that looks like. It seems big. It seems, you know, kind of scary. It's intimidating. They got the ponytail. They got the, you know, the big greased body, hairless mostly. They got the diaper thing that's a little intimidating. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And it's just, it feels like I look at that channel challenge if I step in the ring and instantly I think I can never win. Well, some of you are looking at pornography just like that. I can never win. If you had to wrestle the sumo, if I had to wrestle the sumo, the one chance I have for victory is to starve the sumo. Don't feed them, right? You cut them off from all nourishment. If you starve the sumo for a week, guess what? He's going to be slow. He's going to be lethargic. He's not going to be on his game. you got a good chance. You starve the sumo for a month, he will be sizably smaller. You starve the sumo for a year, and he might not go away totally, but he will be very feeble. And it, it, the, the threats that he shouts from that side of the ring will be very faint and inaudible because you've starved him for a year. Now think about that when it comes to pornography, whether emotional or image-driven. Don't feed the sumo. You starve the sumo. You stop letting your mind go there. You stop letting your fantasies go there. No, no. Instead of feeding the sumo, you begin to feed yourself from God's word. You feed yourself from the good things that God has for you from the blessings that he's bringing into your life, from the honest and wholesome relationships. You, you, you feed yourself from his word. And you feed your mind and fill your mind with his word and the nourishment that comes here. You bulk up and you starve the sumo. And finally, I would encourage you that you would bring another person alongside with you in this process. Right? That you would recognize that you don't have to walk that road alone, fight that battle alone. But if you're a guy, get a guy friend, walk a road of accountability. If you're a gal, get a gal friend alongside, walk that road as well. Remember what Jesus says. He talks about cutting it out. He says, look, the eye is a tool for vision. And if that tool goes bad, cut it out. Well, I know a guy, single guy, he refuses to have internet access at his home. Because he knows that if he had internet access at his home, he'd be tempted to view pornography. So he just doesn't. He has a laptop. If he needs to get online, he goes to a coffee shop. He goes to the library. He cut out internet access. Because he did not want to be tempted. That's a perfect example of cutting it out. I know some people who don't have cable in their home. They cut that out. They gouge it out. Right? 
I know some people block channels. I know other people who, you know, build other kinds of structures in their life. Why? They, they're cutting out the opportunity for lust to get a hold. And so I would encourage you in that as well, that you would do whatever it takes, cut whatever, you know, cut it out. And then invite Jesus to help you cut out the lust. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6.13. It says, our bodies were not made for sexual immorality. Now, they're made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And it's so important to remember that God does care. He cares about your body. He cares about your mind. He cares about your purity and your character and your identity in him. And this inevitably brings us to another part of the conversation. It's not identical, but it's related. And it's the question that always comes up about masturbation, right? Masturbation. Is masturbation wrong? Is it right? How does that go? What is so interesting to me is, as a pastor, as a scholar, read through the Bible many, many times, studied all kinds of things in the scriptures, it's never once mentioned in scripture. Masturbation is never once mentioned in scripture. And some people say, well, it's just because it was assumed and God was a little embarrassed. He's not the kind of God that talks about those things, you know. And <laughs> Listen, if you read through Leviticus, you realize that the Bible is not shy about talking about anything sexual, right? There are all kinds of crazy, deviant, wacko things that are mentioned in Scripture that only a very few people participate in. And God says, no, no, even though only 1.1.11 you know, percent of people ever would think about doing that with that barnyard animal, uh, I still want to make a, a note that that's wrong, okay? So masturbation, it involves, uh, you know, if you can believe the, the statistics, right? You just, like, I mean, so many, almost everyone has at least experimented, if not, you know, figured out that, hey, the, you know, something... It's hard to talk about. It's a little touchy subject, pun intended. (laughs) But it's never once mentioned in Scripture. Now, somebody did argue with me, and they said, no, no, it's mentioned in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. (laughs) That actually does not apply in this regard. And because it is never once mentioned in scripture, I would have to tell you, just as a pastor and as a friend, that this is an issue that you need to settle on your own before the Lord. You need to seek his face, you need to talk to him, and you need to come to a place where you feel at peace before God, wherever you stand. And it's an individual issue and you can't judge your brother or sister for where they land on this. Now, please understand what I'm talking about is more accurately referred to as lust-free masturbation because the very instant that lust enters into the equation, we know because of what Jesus states, what the Bible is very clear about, lust is always a sin. Lust always destroys intimacy. Lust will always invite shame into your world. And so understand that, you know, and then, of course, the other thing comes up. Well, how can there be masturbation if it's lust-free? I mean, it always involves masturbation. And quite honestly, at that point, I don't know. You know, what are you thinking about? You know, trees? Uh, <laughs> that, that sunset turns me on. Like, I, I don't know how, how that goes at that point. But I just want you to understand that, that it's, it's an area where you're going to have to stand before the Lord. So please, you know, and, 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 and just be honest in this. This, some Christian thinkers, scholars, writers suggest 
that for the single person who just has so many hormones and they've got so much passion, um, that, that this might be the way that God provides a way out so that they can stand up under temptation. Lust free, by the way. Uh, some people and some scholars argue that if, if uh, a married couple is they're living in intimacy, they love one another, but one of them is stationed, you know, overseas or has to go away to war or something like that. And there's, there's separation between them that maybe this is the way that God has provided a way out. And that now if you are married, what I would say is you need to have that conversation with your spouse. And you need to be open and honest. There needs to be good dialogue in this regard because dialogue builds what? Intimacy. And if you don't have dialogue and you keep it quiet and you keep it hidden and it's just something over here, guess what? It builds division. And that's not God's best. Okay? So you have to take all these things into consideration and and come to the place where you're going to stand before the Lord. It brings us to the second question. What dangerous and painful covering are you hiding behind? Okay, so what shame-filled seed has Satan planted? And then what dangerous and painful covering are you hiding behind? What shame says is that because of what happened to me, because of what I've done, because of what's been done to me, or because of what I've chosen, that I'm a bad person, that I'm dirty, that I'm unlovable, That's what shame says. Shame is what tells you, you have to cover up. You can't be open. You can't be honest. You can't be transparent. You can't be authentic. No, because it's shameful. And so you find yourself having to put up a false front. Uh, You say to yourself things like, if they knew the real me, they would reject me. Maybe you hide who you are. Maybe you pretend. Maybe what you do is you're just relationally detached. Single person, maybe this is you. Maybe you are not letting anybody get close to you because you know, or you think you know, shame says that you know, that if they knew you, they'd reject you. And so what you do is you sabotage every dating relationship you have. You find yourself with a good Christian guy or a good Christian gal and things are going well, stuff's proceeding well and suddenly you blow the whole thing up. You reject them before they ever get a chance to reject you. And you look back over the course of your life and you see that you've done that again and again and again. Problem's not them. What are you hiding behind? What fig leaf have you sown together covering yourself, but still wounding yourself in the process. You see, what do we need to do when we've been hiding and hurting in isolation for so long? We have to drop the fig leaf. There are only some things that can grow in the dark, things like fungus, things like mold, things like cockroaches, things like shame, right? And to get rid of these things, you turn on the light. The serpent's first temptation involved this area of shame and sexuality. It is the easiest way he knows to bring shame into your world. And shame distorts our thinking and we end up covering and hiding in ways that just bring us more shame. So here is the simple response. These are simple responses that we can pursue in order to combat this. The first is to confess your secret shame. This is something that you might have been the victim on. 
Somebody else might have done this to you. You might have had no willful volition to be involved in this situation at all. And yet, it's still healthy. It's still good to just open it up, air it out, confess it. And maybe for you, it's, it's something you've chosen, right? This is the area of your secret sin, your dirty little secret. But you just admit it. You open it up. You confess it. Okay? This is where I've been hiding. The next thing I would encourage you to do is seek biblical counseling. And that's where you have a mature believer come alongside you and walk you through what the scripture says and many ways to pursue this at Overlake. And we, we do have life groups for it and we have counseling available for it. And, but this idea of a mature believer, now maybe for you, a Celebrate Recovery model would work well. Where you get in a support group and, and you confess, hey, here's where I'm hurting or here's where I'm broken or here's where I've stumbled. And you get incredible support and care and it's all biblically based. I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's so important to begin again to feed yourself from the word of God. To believe what God says about you, not what the lies say, not what the culture says, not what shame says. And the third thing is to take your hurts to Jesus. Jesus who mends broken things. Jesus who is the forgiver, the redeemer, the savior. Jesus who makes all things new. Jesus, 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 Jesus is the truth. And we've already looked at at the fact that the truth is what sets us free. And so what I want to encourage you to do is, I want to encourage you to to think about your life in, in this kind of a context. This is clear water, right? Just water. And somewhere along the line, the, the stain of shame and sin has impacted you. And because of your choices or what someone else has said, you have been tainted by it. Your sin has tainted you. Your, your shame has piled on you. Scripture says, oh, our sins are scarlet. And you know that, that we've been impacted, our thinking's been impacted, our worldview's been impacted, the way we view God has been impacted, the way we view one another in relationships, it's all been impacted. And so you admit it, you confess it, you seek biblical counsel, you invite Jesus in. And what Jesus does is Jesus begins to pour into you, right? Jesus, I'm going to try to do this without breaking something. Jesus begins to pour into you. And you fill yourself and you fill your life with the word, right? You you start putting all kinds of good things in you. You start allowing the Holy Spirit to come in you and to touch you and to bring wholeness where you're currently broken. And, And this is a part of what starving the sumo looks like. You don't feed the sumo. You don't feed those images or those emotions, but rather you feed yourself with the nourishment that comes from God's word, that comes from God's spirit, that comes from God's people. And you just keep going after this truth that the Bible says, though your sins were as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though you are stained and and though you are hurting and though you are broken, there can be healing and wholeness. There can be forgiveness. There can be cleansing that's available. And you just keep pursuing Jesus and you just keep pursuing his best and you just keep walking that road. And sooner or later, you're gonna look at your life and you're gonna realize, you know what? The stain of, sh- of sin, the stain of shame, it's gone. That Christ has cleansed me. This is a part of what it means, making all things new. And there's a verse from the book of Job. Job, who lived this incredibly difficult season of life, and and yet he never once turned his back on God. 
Job 11 says, Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. That view of lifting up your face, that means that you will have no shame, no reason to hide and nothing that you want to hide behind. Well, I want to give you one picture of what this looks like over Lake, and I want to invite my friend Danny to come and to share his story with you. Would you please welcome my friend Danny as he comes to share? Thank you. Uh, Mike's asked me to share my story today, and I'm honored he would do that. Uh, and that's all I want to do today is share my story. It's not a formula to how to have a great life or the 12 happy hops to love, just my personal journey. And I hope some, something I say today will encourage someone. So uh, I decided to call this little story the 30-year-old virgin. <clears throat> uh, I was raised in a fairly normal Christian home with loving parents who taught us kids that God's best for life involved waiting until marriage to have sex. I can't tell you how many virginity is cool conferences I went to or purity covenants I signed. But I do remember making a very sincere commitment to wait until I was married to have sex. Uh, As a part of that, I believe that living together or even spending the night together with someone even fully clothed was not a good idea. Uh, Obviously, in high school, this wasn't really an issue. But as I went away to college, it was a little different. Going away to school with my girlfriend at the time, the option of staying the night at her apartment became a real temptation. Uh, even though we had many late nights together and extended makeout sessions over our five-year relationship, by God's grace, we never had sex or undressed each other. Uh, Jesus had other plans for us, and we ended up parting ways, but with no regrets or guilt about our sexual purity, and thankful we both had the gift of our virginity to give to our future spouses. <clears throat> but that was definitely not the end of the journey for me. I was now in my mid-twenties, nothing holding me back. I was healthy, red-blooded, steak-eating American male in my sexual prime, right? It became harder and harder not to have sex before marriage. I moved far away from home uh, to do music, and I really, really liked girls. Being the only single member of my band, they often seemed to like me. Uh, my other single buddies and I would go out at night and try and meet attractive girls, but somehow Jesus would always remind me of my commitment to him and to purity. Uh, It wasn't always easy or fun, and it seemed to get harder as time went on. I would often come home to awkward sounds of my roommate and his girlfriend in his room as I walked down the hall to my room alone. Uh, This wasn't so bad for a while, but soon I started to get annoyed and lonely and wonder why I was waiting and holding to these standards if it didn't seem to be paying off. How was I going to find someone like me in their late 20s who was still a virgin? Maybe this whole purity thing wasn't such a big idea. As my 29th birthday came and went, I really started to question everything. Did God want me to be happy? Did he want me to be alone and celibate for the rest of my life? Uh, Why had I remained faithful if I was going to end up alone? All my friends were either living with their girlfriends or having sex, and they seemed perfectly happy enough. Then the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin came out. And I thought, dude, that's going to be me. This sucks. Uh, just when I felt like things were never going to change and that maybe Jesus wanted me to be a monk, I met a beautiful Italian girl named Rachel, who, like me, was a virgin. Meeting her literally flipped my life upside down. Two months after my 30th birthday, we were engaged, and this month we celebrated our fourth anniversary. 
Thank you. <clears throat> I can honestly say that she was worth waiting for. In the enjoying our marriage bed department, let's just say we're making up for lost time. All my friends are jealous, but thanks to Mike and the message last week, they're trying to catch up. Give you some time. Uh, and on a side note, she loves it when I get out of the shower and run into the living room and say, I'm naked, I'm naked. <clears throat> Pretty sure I just saw my father-in-law sitting over there. <clears throat> uh, I've never felt so much grace and love from Jesus as I do when my wife looks at me and tells me she loves me. Our marriage isn't perfect, but it's the clearest picture I've ever had of Jesus' love and grace for me. The fact that we were both able to come and give ourselves 100% to each other without bringing anyone else into our marriage bed has been an amazing gift. When I think of how great our sex life is, and it's pretty great, uh, and how beautiful my wife is, I'm so thankful that when you choose God's best, you really get God's best. And his best is, any, is so much bigger than anything we could ever think of or dream of or imagine. Thank you. So I, I, I love that Danny shared his story. And that is a picture of what God's best looks like. And so I want you to understand that we want to paint the picture of what God's best looks like and encourage you to walk that road. And if some of you are here and shame already has you in its grip and you're thinking, but I haven't walked that road, then I want you to keep that picture in mind. That because of the grace and because of the love and because of the care of Jesus Christ, that God can renew us. He can restore us. There can be that innocence regained as we walk with him and let him flood our lives. I want to close by reminding you of those three words, purity and character and Christ that you would pursue purity, that you would construct your character, and that you would allow your identity to be in Jesus, right? Let your mind be focused on the things that he draws your attention to. And let's forget about the lies of the culture and the lies of the enemy. In fact, the last scripture on your outline is from Philippians 4, 8, from the message paraphrase. It says, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, and gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you've learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do ask that you would draw our gaze to you, that we would be focused, that we would meditate on, that, that we would be continually drawn to the things that are good and noble and honorable and right and pure, things that have integrity, things that have value eternally, that you would draw us to a place where we would be very committed, very committed to purity, absolutely committed to our character and integrity, that we would know who we are because our identity is founded in you. And Lord, above all things, we pray in this area of our sexuality, whether we're married today, whether we're single, may someday be married, the, the goal 
is that at one point we would stand before you and before our spouse, naked and unashamed, not having regrets, not having the burden of shame, but because we've been cleansed by you, carried by you. We've been propelled by you to that place where we can stand without anything, no blemish, because you're the one who is taking care of us. We give you our lives. We give you this time. We give you this topic. And I say, Lord Jesus, as the pastor of Overlake, we give you our sexuality. And we ask that you would continue to lead the charge so that we pursue your best. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.